Father God, we thank you this morning for your word and for your truth. We thank you for who you are, who you revealed yourself to be. I pray that this morning as we examine the scriptures, that we would understand rightly, uh, all of our life should be grounded and built upon your word. Through your word that we know who you are, through your word that we understand that you love us, through your word that we realize that we uh, are in need of you to begin with. So, Father, I pray this morning you would put out of mind all distractions this morning. May you cause a focus to come into our minds with clarity. May we receive the word uh, this morning. It's by your grace and by your truth that we uh, proud, uh, pr- uh, boldly declare that you will do these things. And so, Father, we ask now that you will. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, I invite you to open your Bibles. Uh, Mark chapter 12. Uh, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, and I'll have you know, I, uh, I mapped it out. Uh, we will be finished with the Gospel of Mark, which is, uh, I was talking to some brothers this week, they said, how long have you been doing? I said, well, about two and a half years at this point. Uh, we've, taken our t- <laughs> we've taken our time, but uh, obviously we've taken some, some seasons off of. But we will finish uh, the rest of the Gospel of Mark by, uh, right after Thanksgiving. So, Mark chapter 12, we'll uh, pick up, the, it's already been read for us this morning, but we're going to read it again with our eyeballs. So we can see what the Lord is saying to us this morning. So Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. Do not care about anyone's opinion. But you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to him, said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right. Teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. 
And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You say, Pastor Matt, of course we'll get through the rest of Mark if you just preach one chapter a week. Where are we? Jesus has just answered at the end of chapter 11 the question of where his authority is coming from. In the opening of chapter 12, he then tells a parable of the vineyard in, in which he paints the picture that he alone is the foundation of a relationship with God. Look back at uh, verse 10 of chapter 12 there in your Bibles. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, uh, at the end of that, he quotes Psalm um, 118, and there he, he says that, that he is the cornerstone. We looked at this last week, that, that Christ is the foundation of our relationship with God. Like, we don't know God unless we know Christ. And then Mark gives us three encounters in which I believe he is showing us how Christ is that foundation how he is that centerpiece, and how he is that cornerstone. Now, I could preach all of these sections, these three sections in the Roman Sermon, right? You see, look at it. In the first, we have an an encounter with Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians, uh, with Jesus uh, around the question of whether or not it is right to pay taxes. This could be a whole sermon on how we ought to live as Christians underneath the authority of government that God has placed us under. And in the next section, there's this encounter between the Sadducees and Jesus about a question of marriage and and life after death and and whether or not we die or resurrect. And and this could be a sermon on understanding the resurrection and how to think of marriage in this life compared to the life hereafter. And in the third section here, there's an encounter between this lone scribe and Jesus, where Jesus gives a summary of all the scriptures. This could be a whole sermon in and of itself on understanding ethics and how we are to love one neighbor as ourselves. But this morning, I've I've grouped them together into this one sermon. So you might ask yourself, why do that? Are we going to be here the length of three sermons? Which I would tell you no. But I want to give you four reasons why I think all three of these stories Mark is actually presenting before us to answer uh, the question that might have been on the mind at the end of uh, that parable of the vineyard where Christ says he is the cornerstone. Four reasons here that I think all these are the same, telling the same story. The first is that the three encounters all have as their goal the same purpose. Namely, to center the people on the word of God. You might not see this yet, but it'll become clear throughout the sermon. Number two, the structure of all three of these encounters follow a similar pattern. The first is the author grounds us in the motive of the question, right? In the first uh, instance, we have uh, the, the Pharisees uh, and the Herodians coming to him to, to trap him. In the second, we have the, the motive is unbelief in the resurrection. And in the third, we have the, the ground uh, of the question is appreciation for the answers Christ has already given. Uh, the second is the question, uh, there's a question posed, taxes, resurrection, the summary of the Torah. And then thirdly, the, the answer is, is given. Right? So the, the structure of all three of these are similar. Right? These three encounters with Jesus are not three independent events. Thirdly, the, the framing of the first and the third are very similar. 
You see, in verse, in verse 14 of chapter 12, uh, the Pharisees describe, what, what do they call Jesus? There in verse 14, they call him teacher. And, and, and what does the scribe say to him after the answer is given in verse 32? He calls him teacher. Not only that, but they, uh, they both uh, say that Jesus teaches truth. Right, so you can see the framework of the first and the third in verse 14. They say, uh, teacher, we know you are true. You do not care about anyone's opinions. You're not swayed. You truly teach the way of God. And then the scribe at the end of this passage says, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. So both approach Jesus as teacher and both say that Jesus teaches truth. This frames up for us what I think might be uh, uh, three encounters that may appear independent but yet tell the same Story. And then fourthly, the end section of this passage is noted in verse 34 that they simply had no more questions to ask. And so I say all of this to encourage you in your own scripture reading to not think of Jesus as you think of the Siri on the Apple phone. Or Alexa, if you're a Google fan. Or whatever it is that you... Use like right. We we don't appreciate. We don't approach the scriptures as simply uh, Jesus. I need to know what to do about taxes, and then look to the Bible. Oh, pay taxes. Darn. Let me find a different one. Right. We don't we don't approach Jesus that way. Right. Why? Because Mark is painting us a picture, a beautifully true picture of who Christ is here. And if we approach Jesus the way we approach Siri on our iPhones, then we will miss the point entirely. This means, instead of thinking of the scriptures as individualized and unrelated sections and stories, we should ask ourselves, what does tax have to do with the resurrection? Or, what does the resurrection have to do with loving our neighbor? You see, reading your Bibles in this way will keep you from the error of taking these scriptures out of context and twisting it to mean what it never meant in the first place. So then, what is the main point of all of these encounters. What is Mark wanting us to see by stringing together these questions and answers? I'll give it to you and then I'll prove it from the text. The main point of what Mark is trying to do is he's trying to uh, show for us all of life should be based in a proper understanding of the scriptures. In these three passages, we see Jesus regrounding the people into the word of God. Now, notice where Jesus is. The, the scene hasn't changed in the last half a chapter, a chapter and a half, right? He, he's in the temple. What did the temple come to mean? Remember the lesson of the fig tree. The temple has come to replace God as the center of their faith, and, and Jesus is here to recenter their faith on the word. So first we see this application of the word. Look at verse 13. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. Now, the first thing that we should notice here is, is that the, the Herodians and the Pharisees, these were, these, were, these were not people who in and of themselves got along. The Pharisees were the religious right-wing group of the day. They believed in a strict adherence to all the commandments and plus even some more commandments. Meanwhile, the Herodians had been cast as traitors, giving up some of the Jewish rites and some of the Jewish uh, temple sacrifices in order to be better Roman citizens. These people hated each other. You can think of the Herodians as the liberals of their day. And so you have, on the one hand, the far-right extremists of the Pharisees, and on the, the left hand, uh, the Herodians who did not really care about the word of God. 
But notice they have both come together in this, uh, in this um, combination in order to what? In order to trap the Lord Jesus. And they said to him, verse 14, Teacher, we know that you are true. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, now we should stop right there, right? Because this all sounds pretty good. They said, Teacher, we're with you. We know what you're doing. We're, we're on, we know you're teaching about God. We should, we should, we should, this is just a note in general about life. This is a pastoral text, right? Uh, if, everyone, if all your friends continually tell you nice things about you, they're not really your friends. Okay? Beware the person who only gives you flattery compliments, but never presses into you the truth of God. And so they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or not, you see, there was this uh, an uneasy predicament given. You see, they were trying to trap him. No, keep that in the back of your mind. They're not, they're not simply approaching, wondering, Jesus, how do we, how do, we do this, right? Because if, uh, if you were to grab a coin of that day on one side, uh, it, had, it had Caesar's image, as we see later on. But on the back side of that coin, uh, in, in the Roman language of the day, it said high priest, right? And so on the front of the coin, it would say uh, the son of Augustus, right? Uh, uh, you know, the the, the, the the holy one, right? And then on the back it would say, the, uh, he's a high priest, right? And so they, they would be, begin to say, like, there's this argument here that if we pay our taxes, Jesus, then aren't we in somehow, some way, some form, some fashion, worshiping someone other than God? But if he was to answer in the negative, no, don't pay your taxes. Well, then, by then he's overthrowing the authority and then thereby subject to treason by Roman law. So what will Jesus do? Verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy. Right now, notice this. Mark tells us in the opening set line there that, that, that their intent was to trap him. And so they come with the flattery words, right? So Mark is framing up for us, the readers, to know that they don't really care about taxes. They don't care about anything. They just simply care about trapping him. But he notices this. Jesus knows their hypocrisy. Jesus always knows our hearts. He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. Now, now notice, Jesus says, okay, you guys want to talk about tax, you want to talk about coins, just go ahead and bring me one. Notice what Jesus doesn't have on hand. A denarius, but notice who does. You see, they had the denarius. They, they, never, they didn't care about the actual question they were asking. And they brought him one, and he said to them, verse 16, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And what's this saying of Jesus has been one of the most uh, quoted political statements of all time. But what did Jesus mean? You see, they were looking for a yes-no answer. If he said yes, he'd be in trouble. If he said no, they'd be in trouble. But what does Jesus do? He gives us a properly ordered allegiances. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, in this context, what was he looking at? Looking at the denarius, the, the coin itself. And this coin has Caesar's image on it. And so Jesus says, if they want it, give it to them. It's theirs anyway. It has their image. But that's not all he said. Because he said, render to God the things that are God's. 
Notice what he's looking for here. There's this implied imagery. One they can see and one they instinctively know to be true. For this is the reason they marveled at him in the first place. You see, the implied image is that these men and these women themselves bore an image. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, you and I were created as God's imagers. And we function in the capacity of God's representatives here on earth. Understand that the image of God is not a quality within us, right? It's not like some part deep inside of us that's in, oh, like, if I can somehow get that, then I'll have the image of God. No, no, no. The image of God is who we are. We are the image of God. It's not something we acquire. It's not something we become. We simply are. It's what it means to be human. One commentary would say like this, it would be difficult to overstate the centrality of the image of God as a crucial theme in biblical theology. From the beginning of the end in Genesis to the end of the beginning in Revelation, the image of God is crucial for understanding the flow of redemptive history. You see, Jesus is not setting loyalty to God and loyalty to Caesar in opposition to each other. But rather, he is uh, simply saying that we can be loyal to both at the same time. We can be loyal to both at the same time, right? This is why, uh, this is why I wholeheartedly agree that it's okay to be an American. Like, like, it's okay to love America, right? Like, I'm going to say that again. It's okay to be an American. It's okay to love American ideals and principles, and you can do that and still consider yourself a Christian. Well, pastor, are you arguing for Christian nationalism? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. As long as we understand that loyalty to God is far and above loyalty to the nation. This, of course, this image of God was best pictured in the life of Christ, who is the image of God, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, Jesus, what he's doing here is taking something he knows to be ontologically true. That's just a fancy word for saying it's actually true. That we, you and I are made in the image of God. And what he does, he's, he applies this to the life and to the question the Pharisees and Herodians ask. He's applying the word of God to the question of taxes. He's not pitting the word of God against submitting to authorities, but he's creating a way of applying the word to the issue at hand. And this is what you and I should do as Christians. Right, the, 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 uh, Paul and Colossians would actually go on to say that, that we are continually being remade into the image of God. Listen to this. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There is no area, the principle here, there is no area of your life to which the word 
should not be applied. There is no area of your life to which the word should not be applied. These, these cats were wanting Jesus to say yes or no. And what does Jesus do? He, he goes to the word. How should the word help us frame up the answer? In the same way, there is no aspect of our lives. Marriage, family, raising children, your, your, your role in the workplace, your role in civil life, your role in the church. All of this is subject to the word of God. But notice in the next section here that how we approach the word has massive implications for how we think about and apply the word. Look at verse 18. The Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. Notice what Mark does here. He frames it up for us. right? Because if Mark didn't add, think about it, if Mark didn't add that little second phrase in, that, in verse 18, who say that there is no resurrection, what would you and I know about the Sadducees? It would be like nothing. You see, it's almost as if the gospel writers knew they were writing to future generations. That's, just, that's for free. But notice, Mark frames it for us, the Sadducees had no belief in the resurrection. They didn't believe the word of God. And so they asked him a question, saying, Teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother, and so on and so forth. Seven brothers uh, given, seven brothers died, no offspring. The woman dies. They think they got Jesus here. (laughs) Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now, remember, they have no understanding of the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. And so they think that this is the trick question which will prove to them that they've been right all along. Because either Jesus has to admit, well, there is no resurrection, or Jesus has to say, well, there's polygamy in the resurrection. But notice, this is a ridiculous application of the word. You see, they they were referencing Deuteronomy chapter 25, the Leverite, Leverite law, right? We talked about this law when we preached through the book of Ruth about this time last year. But here's what it says, Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead mother, or dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Right? And you'll remember that I said while preaching through Ruth, that I said, like, this seems strange to our Western ears, doesn't it? This seems weird. But what God was doing here was providing a provision for widows. Number one, he was giving grace to the family name so that his, his brother's name may not be blotted out. But more importantly than that, like, God was preserving his promise. From Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, within the context of Scripture, specifically within the context of the Torah, uh, we see that God has promised to provide an offspring, a baby, a seed, a child, which would be the one, uh, the way in which God would restore the cosmos. Adam and Eve had Cain. Abel, Seth, and many others. And each time that they had a baby, they they wondered, is this the one? Is this the one who will make all things right? This is why to be a woman in the Old Testament and to be without child was such a huge deal. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, all barren until God moved. So the the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, they began to say, okay, we we got you. 
But notice Jesus' response in verse 24. Notice the reason that he gives them for why they don't understand. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What are the reasons Jesus gives for the Sadducees being wrong here? You don't know. You don't know the scriptures. You don't even know the power of God. You see, they didn't believe the scriptures. They did not believe nor understand the power of God. Now, now what, is, what is Jesus meaning here? Because oftentimes when he had these interactions with uh, folks and people who came to him, he would often say, you, you, just, you missed the whole point of the scriptures. Right? So, for example, in John 5, he would say this. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe. Go ahead and turn there, John chapter 5. Get, turn there in your Bibles. Let me see this. John chapter 5, verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe. Now, notice what's, what's similar between what, what Jesus is saying in John 5 and, and Mark with the Sadducees. It's like they don't believe. They don't believe the scriptures. They don't believe the one he has sent. Verse 39 of John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words, Jesus' point in all of this is that in their study of the scriptures, they miss the point entirely. They miss the point entirely. Jesus would say that all the scriptures speak of him. And they didn't believe it. They missed it. Thinking back now to Mark chapter 12, there's a couple premises that, that go un, unnoticed here if you don't think about it. But notice the first premise that, that God speaks accurately in the scriptures. Like that's, that's the underlying base assumption that God has spoken accurately in the scriptures. Like that's what Jesus' base is, his first premise. On the second premise, he says that in the scripture, God speaks of the dead in the present tense. That's the meaning behind the Exodus quote. Conclusion, therefore, is the dead live in the presence of God. Therefore, resurrection is a reality. You see what happens with the Sadducees, and what I'm afraid may happen to some of us in this very room is we come to the scriptures with a heart of, you better prove it to me. You better, you better prove this to me instead of coming to the scriptures the way we should, which is with a heart of belief. With a heart of belief. If we approach the scriptures 
as one standing over it and demanding the scriptures prove their, uh, their, their reality to us, prove the truth to us, then who are we saying is more ultimate, us or the scriptures? We say we are. But that's not true, is it? Or how do you know that your own reasoning, that your own logic, that your own intellect is better than the scriptures? You see, Jesus would say all the scriptures are about him, Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, Acts 8, 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus, Acts 17, 2, and Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, Acts 18, 28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. You see, understand that the point of all of this is how we approach the scriptures will fundamentally shape how we perceive the scriptures. How we approach the scriptures will fundamentally shape how we perceive those scriptures. So this this changes then how we should approach the word of God, doesn't it? We should always approach the scriptures with faith-seeking understanding. We do not stand over this book, but this book stands over us. But notice then how the next encounter seeks to analyze the word with a faith that seeks understanding. Verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Notice this scribe here stands alone. Before it was groups of folks Sadducees coming out, Herodians, the Pharisees, they're all coming out in these groups of questions. But you have this lone scribe here, only scribes who seems to be actually hearing what Jesus is saying in his answers. He seems to understand that the scriptures have authority over his life and over every aspect of his life. And so he approaches Jesus differently. Notice he's not trying to parse the scriptures and pit them against the culture nor against itself. Rather, he sees the scripture as being true without question. But he has a question, which is, which is the most important? This is a common question of the day. As a matter of fact, one uh, Jewish school taught that, uh, uh, they said, teach me all the Torah while standing on one leg, and they would summarize it like this. Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. This is pretty much what Jesus says, only in reverse. He says, look at verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Notice, first of all, Jesus gives them the answer, right? The greatest commandments, verses 30 and 31. You have to love God, love neighbor, right? We are to summarize it up more than what Jesus says. Love God, love your neighbor. But notice where Jesus starts the quote. From Deuteronomy, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. He starts it by grounding it in uh, the, the opening of the Shema, right? This is the, what the, they would repeat this every night and every morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is massively important because it grounds the commandment of loving God into understanding that this is the Lord our God. 
he, well, well, which God? The one true God, the only God who actually is and exists. This becomes especially important in the early church. You see, the Christian faith is not a new teaching of a new religion or a new way of life, but rather the Christian faith is grounded in the scriptures themselves. Jesus is emphasizing here. He's, 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 he's aligning himself with Jewish Orthodox belief and the monotheistic belief of one God. That's where he starts. He, didn't, he could have ignored that, right? This is important because he could have not quoted, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He could have just immediately went, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, strength. Right? He could have done that, but he doesn't. Because if we are going to try to follow the commandments of God, we need to understand who this God actually is. And only from there can we then go on to summarize Notice what he does. He, he summarizes the Ten Commandments. Right? Love God, love neighbor. Right? This is, in essence, all the teachings of how we are to live. The Ten Commandments were given on two tables or two tablets. And it's thought that on the one, uh, you had the first five commandments, and on the second, you had the second five commandments. And it's been noted that the first five seem to be uh, vertical, except with the fifth commandment, which seems to be honor your mother and father, right? Uh, but the other, the other five commandments all seem to be vertical relationships, right? How we treat one another. Do not lie. Do not covet. Do not commit uh, adultery, right? All of those things. And so Jesus summarizes them both. Love God. Love your neighbor. Now, there's a question here that we should, we should pause and ask ourselves. Is this right for Jesus to summarize all the scriptures, all the commandments into two? And it is. As a matter of fact, the, 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 the New Testament apostles would actually summarize it down from these two to one and to love your neighbor. Because the assumption was that if you're going to love your neighbor well, you have to first start with actually loving God. So, for example, let's say the, the commandment of, of do not murder, right? do not kill. Do you know this wasn't the only commandment that had to do uh, with uh, harm to another individual? In the Old Testament, there were commands such as uh, do not maim. Right? Don't, don't, don't maim another person. Right, And then Jesus would show up and he would say that not only should you not murder, you should actually not hate. Right, And ultimately, what can, what, what can that be then summarized as in a positive sense? Simply love your neighbor. Right, All the commands are grounded in understanding of how we should have right relationship with one another. But notice the scribe's response to this. Verse 32, he said to him, You are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You see, the scribe realizes what Jesus is saying here is true. It's as if Jesus has struck a note which resonates inside of his heart. But he does more than that, doesn't he? You see, the scribe agrees with Jesus' quotation of Deuteronomy. He then goes on to link it with the restatement of it in Isaiah 40, chapter 45, verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. 
But then he not only links it with Isaiah 45, he then links it with the command to love your neighbor with a prophetic critique of having sacrifice without obedience, right? So one of the primary points of the Old Testament prophets seemed to be like, you guys are doing it all wrong. You have sacrifice, but you have nothing in the heart that resembles that sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Hosea 6, 6, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So what are we to make of all that the scribe is saying here? See, the scribe is beginning to see what Jesus is actually meaning in all of this. Remember, where are, we, where are we standing right now? Where is the scribe standing? Where is Jesus standing? They're inside the temple. Remember the lesson from the fig tree. Out with the old and in with the new. The temple was never the point. Life with God was the point. A life grounded in the scriptures and in the word of God was the point. You see, this scribe beginning to see with clarity what Jesus is framing up and saying is the final blow to the temple system. The God who has anointed, this is what one commentator said, the God who has anointed Jesus as eschatological warrior king to lead humanity out of bondage along the way of the Lord is the one only living God who claims the whole self an undivided loyalty of every person created in God's image and whose entire ethical system is to love one's neighbor as oneself. You see, all of our life should be based in a proper understanding of the scriptures. In these three passages, we see Jesus regrounding the people into the word of God. So here's my final point of application, then we'll observe the Lord's Supper. The temple had come to replace the center of the religious faith in Jesus' day. And he needed to reground them into the word of God. Therefore, we should analyze what is our faith grounded in? What is our faith grounded in? You see, the scriptures were about God and Jesus and the apostles continually teach us that the scriptures are actually about Christ. Therefore, our faith needs to be grounded in Christ. Our understanding of the scriptures themselves need to be grounded in Christ. Our understanding of how we become righteous before a holy God needs to be grounded in Christ. Knowing how we ought to think in terms of our lives, interacting with the authority that has been placed above us, needs to be grounded in Christ. Our understanding of life hereafter needs to be grounded in Christ. How we love each other needs to be grounded in Christ. All of the scriptures are about Jesus. This is why the scriptures and the, the church would have uh, no understanding of a person who claims to love Jesus but has no regard for the word which Jesus has spoken of. A person who claims to love Jesus but has no regard for the word of God has no basis on which they can actually ground their faith. It's simply a matter of feeling. The church, we should take this book and we should love it. We should understand it rightly in light of who Christ is. That means all of the Old Testament needs to be understood of what Christ, of who Christ is and what Christ has done. How we live in America needs to be grounded in how Christ understands us to live. 
how we think about our interactions with believers and non-believers alike needs to be grounded in what the scriptures actually say. This is more than enough work for all of us to work on this week. All of the scriptures are about Jesus, therefore all of our lives should be about him through the lens of scripture. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. Without your word, Father, we would be in darkness. We'd be lost. None of us can feel our way to you, Father. We need you. We thank you that you've spoken. As Hebrews would say, you've now spoken by your son. Father, I pray we would hear him today speaking through the scriptures. I pray we would hear you speaking through the scriptures. May all of our faith and all of our the foundations of our faith be built on the cornerstone who is Christ. Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. And then we'll ask the deacons to, to come forward.